Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. This weekend, we're in week three of our series called Holier Than Now. And if you've missed any part of the series, I would encourage you to go back and get caught up because the series is all about the holiness of God and how do we relate to a holy God and how does a holy God relate to us? And so over the last few weeks, we've been unpacking this idea together. And some of the, the, the ideas and some of the things we're talking through are based on a, a book by Jackie Hill Perry called Holier Than Now. Uh, and it is a fantastic resource. Um, Pastor Todd mentioned a couple other resources last weekend. One I would mention for this weekend is by R.C. Sproul. It's called The Holiness of God. Um, and it is a little deeper. It's a little denser, but it's an excellent book if you want to go deeper on the topic of the holiness of God. Now, I want to start with Isaiah chapter 6. And this is where we started a few weeks ago. And this is a vision by the prophet Isaiah. And this is what he says. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's army. I love that, that they call him the, the Lord of heaven's army because there is no army greater than the army of heaven. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations. The entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it is all over. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Um, we talked a few weeks ago about our response to a holy God, um, what Isaiah's response was, what that looked like. And the, the word here for a holy is... Uh, the Hebrew word kadosh, and kadosh just means sacred, set apart, holy. It means sanctified, separate. And so when we think about God, he is set apart. He is separate from any other God. He's separate from everything else. There is nothing like him. There is no one like him. He is holy. And one of the words that, that I, I mentioned to you before that I think I would describe God as is pure, when we think about holy being set apart, think about the word purity. Um, when gold is refined, it is heated to the point that the pure gold is separated from the, the lesser elements. It is separated because they want the purest form of the gold. Um, and God is holy, he is pure, so he is separated. If there was anything that was unholy that was mixed with him, he would cease to be holy. That's the point. So he is holy, he is separate, there is none like him. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse four, he, talking about God, he is the rock. And the rock, I don't know about you, but a rock is firm, a rock is solid, uh, a rock seems at least to us to be ageless. And this is what the writer of Deuteronomy is saying. He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He's faithful God who does no wrong how just and upright he is. So what we see here is that God is perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He's never made a mistake. He's never had a moment where he went, oh no, oh shoot, 
oh, I blew it. That's not who our God is. That is outside of his nature. Sometimes when we think about holiness, uh, we think about it in terms of legalism and I've got to be holy. So I've got to stop doing all these things. Um, and we think about it in terms sometimes of like old Testament versus new Testament. Well, a holy God is old Testament. Uh, he was vengeful in the old Testament, right? He was mean in the old Testament in the new Testament. Jesus shows up and Jesus is nice. And we sing songs about the love of God, right? And probably songs about the vengeance of God wouldn't be as popular, I guess, but uh, we sing songs about the, the, the love of God. And somehow we believe that God has shifted who he is that in the old Testament, he was vengeful and he was holy in the new Testament. He's full of grace and love and mercy. But I want you to hear this and understand this. Our God is the rock. He is timeless. He is ageless. He never changes. So our God was loving and benevolent and merciful in the Old Testament too. And I want you to hear this. The same God who was present in the Old Testament resides with us today. He is a God who values righteousness and holiness and, and he seems to be vengeful at times, right? I know if you're like me, you've read portions of scripture and you went, ooh, I don't know about that. That feels a little weird. That doesn't quite sit right, right? Like, oh, I don't know if that works today. But this is the thing. And I guess this is the question we should ask. Does, does God's holiness require vengeance? And the answer is, Sometimes, well, this isn't very politically correct. You're right, it's not. Um, see, the God we serve exacts justice, and that's really what we're talking about this weekend, is holy justice. And I, and I don't mean justice like we think of when we talk about like social justice. I'm talking about legitimate justice in the eyes of God. So, God being just means that there are things that are contrary to his nature and his will and his desire. And because of that, there is consequences. And that consequence could be viewed as vengeance. But I want you to understand this. We filter God through our knowledge of who we are. So we look at God and go, well, he is an angry God. No, God doesn't lose his temper like we do. When my girls were little, um, I can remember one time that, that with my girls that I spanked out of anger that I was frustrated and I was like, you are being punished, right? And it was more about me than it was about correction. Our God doesn't do that. Our God doesn't lose his temper. Our God doesn't punish us just because he's angry. That is not how he works. We filter God through that lens and it's wrong. So what we have to understand is that, that God's holiness does require vengeance, but it is different than what we understand it to be. It's different than what we see. How does God interact with sin? Well, um, <laughs> probably not the way we would like. In the book of Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk is praying this prayer to God. And he says this in verse 12. He says, oh Lord, my God, my holy one, you are eternal. Surely you did not plan to wipe us out. So he's praying on behalf of the nation of Israel 
that was in captivity. And, and, and God's, he's reminding God, he's implying this, that, hey, you've got a covenant with your people. Surely you're not going to wipe us out, is what he's saying. Oh, Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. So he's acknowledging, hey, we are sinners and you're using the Babylonians as an implement, as a tool of correction for us. Listen to what he says in verse 13. But you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Will you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? I love the fact that they use the word pure here. He says, you are pure, you are holy. There's none like you. There is no evil intent in you is what he's saying. So he says, are you just going to put up with their evil? Are you going to wink at their treachery? See, when we ask the question, how does God interact with sin? Or how does a holy God interact with sin? I I want you to know, um, there's no easy way of saying this, but God is repulsed by sin. And I want you to to divorce yourself from this idea that... um, that sin is simply behaving badly. Like we broke the rules and we sinned and now God's mad because we sinned. He loves us when we don't sin. He's mad when we do sin. God loves you all the time. His heart is broken when we sin. Now, this is why. Um, It says in, in Romans chapter six, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. The free gift of God is eternal life. So we get to choose. We get to choose life or death. And this is what I want you to understand. Growing up, I used to think that sin led to hell. And this is true. It does ultimately lead to hell. And that being good and moral led to heaven. And that is not entirely true because it's relationship with Christ that ultimately leads to heaven. But I want you to think about it this way. There is no life outside of God. God is life. So everything outside of God leads to death. God's desire for you is life. So when we live a life that's contrary to God, we're living a life that's full of death. See, I I think we get hung up on the eternal consequence and don't get me wrong, we need to, but we fail fail to view intimacy with God as a gift in and of itself. See, if we valued God and knew who he really was, it would make it easier for us to see, hey, when I am walking in disobedience to God, it's not about I'm going to go to hell. It's about I am walking in death on a daily basis. There is no life outside of God. So when I sin, what I'm really doing is removing myself from true life in God. There's no abundance outside of God. And and because because sin is death, God is repulsed by it. Because there's no part of God that is sinful. It is contrary to who he is. is. It is at odds with who our God is. Because of that, he's repulsed by it. See, our God is beautiful and selfless and holy, and pure, and righteous, and he's full of life. And so when we walk in a way that's contrary to that, it's not that he's mad at us and wants to punish us. It is simply that the natural consequence of that is 
death. John Murray is a biblical writer and author, and he said, the wrath of God is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is contradiction to his holiness. See, God is revulsed by sin because it is in contradiction to who he is, holy. See, sin is literally uh, ungodly living and thinking, and it's contrary to the identity of God. The, the biblical word uh, for sin that we see, that I mentioned a minute ago, the wages of sin is death in Romans chapter six, is uh, hamartia. And hamartia uh, means to, to be without a share in, which I think is big. To miss the mark. Think about it this way. There's a lot of hunters uh, in our church and in the area, and you might understand this. If you're sitting in a blind, you're waiting on your gigantic buck that you've been tracking on your uh, trail cam for weeks or years maybe, and he finally gets in the perfect spot, but you don't think you can get a clean shot, you hold off. Why? Because you might not be able to hit the mark, right? Maybe if you're target shooting and you, you're trying to dial in your sights, why? You're trying to hit the mark. You're trying to make sure things line up. And, and what sin literally is, is us missing the mark. There is a standard, an objective standard that we fail to meet that is sin. To err, be mistaken. To miss or wander from the path of our brightness and honor to do or go wrong. The first definition was to be without a share in, and this is important because like I said a minute ago, we miss out on life when we sin. And what we're essentially saying is, I am forfeiting my share in life to make this decision I'm making to walk in disobedience to God. I am forfeiting something good. And really, this is something I've been thinking about over the last few weeks. When, when I make a decision to do something that's contrary to, to the will of God, something that's sinful, um, it is because I've lost, I've lost sight of how valuable and precious God is. I am willingly deciding to... to Set aside God for something else. Pastor Todd talked about this a little last week. That's idolatry. It's valuing anything above God. And this is what sin is, and this is what sin does. And the weird thing is, we live in a culture that tries to mute the power of sin. In fact, there are many preachers that won't even talk about sin because it feels so offensive to us. We don't want to be offended by sin. We don't want anybody telling us that we are sinful because they might not come back to church, what would happen? So what do we do? We, we tamp down talk of sin because we think it'll be better for us. And this is a problem. It's worse yet whenever we call sin a good thing. And we live in a culture today that we not only allow sin, but we celebrate sin. There are things that occur in our culture, and I'd say even in many churches, that are sinful, that are contrary to the word of God, but yet we celebrate them and we call them good. That's a problem. Earlier I mentioned this passage in Habakkuk. And Habakkuk says in verse 13, will you wink at their treachery? When I uh, first got into youth ministry, I made a mistake. Um, with my very first youth group in White House, Texas. Um, I was talking to the group and Kim and I weren't even married yet. And I was addressing the group and I said, hey, I want you guys to know something. 
I am not here to be your best friend. I'm here to be your youth pastor. And that sentiment is true, but the way I communicated it was wrong. What I wanted to communicate was, um, I'm, I'm going to be your best friend. I'm going to be the very best friend you ever had because I'm gonna hold you accountable when you do something stupid. That's what a very best friend will do. A very best friend will call you out, right? If you're going the wrong path, whatever it might be. And I made the mistake because what I wanted to say was, hey, I'm not gonna let you get away with stupid stuff. I'm not going to um, wink at your sin. Somebody comes to me and goes, Pastor Mel, man, I messed up with my girlfriend. I really shouldn't have done that. Oh, buddy, you shouldn't have done that. You rascal. Oh, you messed up. It's okay. Oh, you're just a teenager. That happens. Like, that's what I was trying to say. I will never do that. But this is what we do so many times. Because we don't want to confront. We don't want to speak truth into people's lives, people we love. So what do we do? We, we wink at sin. We go, oh, you know, you shouldn't drink uh, to your teenager, but you shouldn't be drinking. But if you're going to drink, at least do it in our house. What? What kind of message are we sending? Like, hey, you shouldn't be sinning, but as long as you're sinning in our house, it's fine. It's not just for teenagers. <laughs> you're like, why did we choose to come to church this weekend? <laughs> Sexual sin abounds. Well, I'm not hurting anybody, it's just a little pornography. Well, I mean, come on, Mel. Uh, we love each other. Why shouldn't we be sleeping together? Well, Scripture says you shouldn't because you're not married. That's what Scripture says. But we love each other. Yeah, but God can't bless something he forbids because he is a holy God. But when we say, oh, God's loving, he's benevolent, he's going to wink and nudge us like, oh, hey, buddy, you shouldn't be doing that. Come on. What's happened is we've got this, this view of God, this, this New Testament view of God where we go, oh, he's benevolent and loving and he's just like a grandpa. Whenever I would send my kids to my in-laws or to my parents' house, we would have to deprogram them when they came home. Does that happen to anybody else? <laughs> I might have told this story. When we lived in Oklahoma, it was funny, my, my mother and father-in-law, and she's probably watching this weekend, Jan, I love you, don't be mad at me for saying this. So, um, about halfway between where I lived and where my in-laws lived was this town called Ardmore, Oklahoma. And they had a Brahms ice cream and dairy store, which I've talked about is one of my favorite places uh, from back there. And so we would meet halfway at Brahms. And so we met at lunchtime and um, we got there and it was just me and the girls and Jan and they were, she was, we were exchanging. And so we sit down, we'd eaten our lunch and I said, hey, how about some ice cream? And they're like, yeah. You know, they're never going to turn it down. They get that from me. So we went and got ice cream. We come back and we're eating our ice cream. And one of the girls, I don't remember if it was Abby or Emma, said, this is the third ice cream we've had today. And I looked at my mother-in-law and she just went, <laughs> right? It's like, it is, it is like 1130 in the morning and this is their third ice cream? Like, what's going on? See, a grandparent is permissive. A grandparent goes, well, you shouldn't, but it's okay. It's not gonna hurt anything, right? That's not what God does. God is not a God who goes, you shouldn't, but it's okay. See, we say things like God is love. And I want you to hear this, God is love. But we talked about this before, and I want you to hear this again. Um, 
God is holy first and foremost. Every other attribute of God flows out of his holiness. And God can't be at odds with himself. So if the love of God violates the holiness of God, you default to holiness. So if, if you think the love of God would go, ah, oh, buddy, it's okay for you to live that way. It violates his holiness. A holy God cannot love you in sin. He cannot wink and nudge you in the middle of that. He cannot. It is in violation of who he is. And when we believe that, we're believing in a God that's not a real God. See, when we say God is love, many times that's a declaration that God is not just. So God's, God's not really just. He, his mercy will cover and it'll, he'll have to forgive me. It's gonna be okay. And God is a forgiving God, but he is a just, holy God as well. There's a passage in... Mark chapter 12. In Mark 12, um, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to him and he says, good, good. Hey, God is the only one who's good. And I love this because he never says, I'm not God. He, he never says, I'm not good, right? And so it's this like, this implication like, hey, you got it right. You accidentally got it right, but you got it right. I am God and I am good. But he says, there's none good but God. Now, have you ever known somebody that you would describe as good? I have. I've known lots of people that I was like, oh man, what a great guy. He is a good man, right? Am I the only one that's ever known a good person in their life? <laughs> this isn't a trick question. We've all known people that we would call good, right? But this is the thing, Jesus says, there is none good but God. Well, how can that be? Because our experience says, no, there's lots of good people in the world, but your experience is lying to you. Because they're not good all the time. I would say this, they're partially good some of the time. Examine your own life. You might say I'm a good guy, but if you're being honest, you'd go, I'm a good guy some of the time. Some of the time, I'm a jerk. Some of the time, I'm a jerk plus, right? Let's be honest. Why? Because we're not holy. God is holy, and because he's holy, he can be good all the time. He is good because he's holy. He is loving because he's holy. And his love will not violate his holiness. See, we think Love is lenient, but it's not. Love is direct. Love can be confrontational. And I think that's who our holy God is. See, we're talking about holy justice and how a just God can't put up with sin. And if we're gonna be honest, uh, when we think about injustice, we're often outraged, aren't we? We, we, we get frustrated, we get angry at injustice. Um, I was watching a, a documentary um, about, about the uh, Winter Olympics that happened in Salt Lake City. And it was the, um, the couples skating event. And in this, in this skating event, the Russians 
barely beat the Canadians. And this was a big deal because at the end of the event, most people thought the Canadians had won. Come to find out later that the Russians had cheated with the French and they had, they had schemed to give the competition to the Russians. And it was amazing, I don't remember at the time, but it was amazing seeing the public outcry because if you're a figure skater, please forgive me for this. I can't believe people would care that much about figure skating, right? But people were outraged. They were like, oh, it's a sham. I mean, people were angry. When they announced the results in the arena, there were boos, like boo, right? Because people saw it as an injustice. Something needs to be done. This last week, I went to a Penn State basketball game, the men's game. They were playing the University of Rutgers in New Jersey. And so home game and got some seats and we're sitting there watching the game and some people sitting around us were getting angry. Come on, ref! Oh, can you believe this? It was like, we're sitting in the 18th row, man. He can probably see it better than we can, right? That's not fair. Call it the same both ways. He was getting angry. It's like, dude, this is a January game between Penn State and Rutgers, right? It has no eternal consequence. But this man felt like this was unfair. This is unjust. Our team's not being treated fairly, right? And he was angry. See, we want things to be fair. And really, we know in our gut when things don't seem fair or seem right. And we want the guilty people punished, don't we? Until we're the guilty people. See, we want things to be right until we're on the other side of right. And we're like, no, 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 how about some grace right now? See, we like justice when we're the ones dispensing it on our terms, but, but we want grace when we're the ones who have messed up. There's a passage I wanna share with you that I've struggled with through the years. Hopefully we can walk through this together and make a little sense. In 2 Samuel chapter six, David was king of Israel. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant had been out of their possession. It had been out of the, the, the temple where it belonged in the place of worship. And so David is going to retrieve it. In verse one, it says, then David gathered all the elite troops of Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to um, Bela of Judah to bring back the Ark of God, which bears the name of Lord of Heaven's army. The Ark of the Covenant symbolically um, represented the, the holiness and the presence of God. Verse three says, they placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that, that carried the ark of the God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, uh, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, cymbals. Listen to verse six. When they arrived at the threshing floor of Nakon, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this before, but for me, when I've read this in the past, I've looked at this and been like, wait a second, that doesn't seem fair. Uzzah, all he was doing 
was just trying to keep it from falling. He, he recognized this is a holy implement. This is a holy vessel. And we don't want this in the dirt. We don't want this in the mud. And so his natural response was to go, hey, I'm gonna hold it up. I'm gonna keep it from being dirty. Does that make sense? Which seems reasonable, right? A lot of us may respond that very same way. And so I think that's why we read this and we go, wait a second, that doesn't seem fair. We're shocked by this. So let me give you a little background. The Ark of the Covenant had been in the home of Abinadab about 20 years. It had been there and some scholars have speculated that Uzzah and his brother probably got pretty comfortable with the Ark of the Covenant. It had become common for them. They had grown accustomed to seeing it and being around it. So in that moment, for Uzzah, it was no big deal. This is just something he was comfortable with, something that had become familiar to him. What we see uh, in the book of Numbers is that there is strict regulations given on how to handle the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, the regulations stipulate that there should be poles that are used to carry, that you're specifically never to put it on a cart, that it's always supposed to be carried by men on poles. So what we see in this moment is, number one, Uzzah, they violated the word of God, the, the law of God, by saying, we're gonna put it on a cart. And this doesn't seem like a big deal until we understand that God gives us direction, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. So when God tells us to do something, it's never because God is just playing God. He's like, let's see if the monkeys will dance now. That's not how God works. God gives us instruction for our benefit. And they violated that. They said, we'll do it this way. Maybe they forgot. Maybe they thought their way was better. Whatever the case is, they violated the law. The second part of that is, they became familiar and comfortable with the holy things. And I think these two reasons are why Uzzah died, ultimately. I think when we become so comfortable and familiar with the things of God that we handle them with unholy hands, it's a problem for us. When we fail to recognize how holy our God is and how unholy we are, it makes it easy for us to flippantly handle things that we should handle a little more carefully than we do. To be honest with you, and I don't mean this in a prideful way, I think that's one of the reasons why so many pastors, and not just of big churches, but small churches as well, have moral failures. Because we get so comfortable handling holy things like the word of God, like the sacrament, like the, the people of God, that we just take it for granted and we just get comfortable with it. It becomes common for us. That which is supposed to be holy becomes profane. So now we're touching holy things with unholy hands. Just like Isaiah said, we're a people of unclean lips and we're a nation of unclean lips. We're sinners and we just go, well, that's just who we are. R.C. Sproul, he said this, Uzzah, assumed that his hands were less polluted than the earth. He said, I'm gonna hold this up so it doesn't get in the dirt, but he assumed his hands were holier than the dirt and the mud. See, we assume we are holier than we are. 
and we assume God is less holy than he actually is. This is part of our disconnect with our sin because for us, sin is common. It is normal. But for, for God, sin cannot exist in him. So many times people ask, well, what's the right thing to do? And how are you supposed to know? And that might be right for you, but we, we make right and wrong subjective as if there is no objective right or wrong. But in Romans chapter five, Paul says to the Romans, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound is what it says in the King James Version. So what does it say here? God's law was given so we could see how sinful we are. See, we, we live in a postmodern world that says there's no objective truth. And because there's no objective truth, we all live our own truth. And that's one of the things I hate hearing when people say, well, that's just my truth. I'm living my truth. Let me help you with something. There is one objective truth and it is God. He is the standard, period. There is no other truth but God's truth. We can pretend there's some other truth out there, but there is not. There is one objective truth. So when God gives us the law, he doesn't give us the law to restrict us. He gives us the law for our benefits. And when he gives us the law, it is our standard by which we can go, wow, I don't measure up. I fall short. Because if there's no objective standard, we can all do whatever we want. We've all got our own standard for holiness. And I want you to hear this. There is a standard for holiness and it is God. All the way back. Does anybody remember 1997? Back in 1997, there used to be a magazine called U.S. News and World Report. And they did a survey of a thousand people. And they asked this question. They said, who do you think is most likely to get into heaven? And they began polling them and asking them questions. Um, former President Bill Clinton. 52% of the respondents said Bill Clinton is most likely to get into heaven. All kinds of jokes to be made here and I will refrain because I love Jesus. <laughs> Michael Jordan, 65% of people said Michael Jordan is good enough to get into heaven. He will get into heaven. Mother Teresa had 79% chance according to the people that responded. But there was one person who outranked everyone else on the list with 87%. It wasn't the Pope, it wasn't Billy Graham, it was the person responding to the interview. The person that was responding said, I'm more likely to go to heaven than Mother Teresa, right? 87% of the people said, I'm good enough to go to heaven, but Mother Teresa, I don't know about. This was amazing when I read this. I think human beings have a, a, an endless ability <laughs> to misjudge how good we are. Because what those people were saying is, I'm good enough for heaven. But what scripture says is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why? Because there is an objective standard in God, his holiness, and he has given us the law as an objective standard. But what happens is we subjectify everything and we go, well, I'm better than so-and-so and I'm better than so-and-so. That is not the standard. A.W. Tozer said, everything in the universe is good to the degree that it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to do so. See, everything in the universe is only good 
and that it bears the image of God, that it looks like him, that it resembles him. Everything else is evil. That's the standard. See, I think the reason we accuse God of being unfair is that we misunderstand sin and we fail to grasp how holy our God really is. When we see judgment like Uzzah, Uzzah, I gotta figure that out at some point. We wonder and we think it's not fair when we see Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt because she looked back. We think that's not fair. We see cities along with all its inhabitants, men, women, and children devoted for destruction. We ask why and we think it's not fair. It's hard for us to reconcile this, but I want you to know um, God cannot be indifferent to sin. He cannot. He's too holy. In fact, he's holy, holy, holy. He's not good, good, good. He's not lovely, lovely. He is holy, holy, holy. In the book of Genesis, chapter 15, um, God is talking to Abraham about the future and he says this in verse 13, says, then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. God's talking about Egypt. So they spent 400 years in Egypt as slaves. And he says in verse 14, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth, which they did. God punished Egypt and they took the wealth of Egypt with them. Verse 15 says, as for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. So I've had people ask me before, if God is a good God, if God is a loving God, why would he send the Israelites into the promised land and, and command them to wipe out the inhabitants? That doesn't feel like a good God or a loving God. And I, I, let me back up and say, it is a holy God. It doesn't make sense to us because we don't understand how holy God is. But, but this verse gives us a clue. This verse says, hey, your descendants will enter that land for the sins of the Amorites do, you, do not yet warrant their destruction. See, this sounds hostile, but what God is saying is, the way it says in the King James Version is, their cup of iniquity is not yet full. What he's saying is, they're pretty bad, but I'm giving them another chance. This is the God of the Old Testament. He's saying, hey, they're heading for death. They're heading for destruction, but I'm not willing to give up on them yet. Their cup of iniquity is not yet full. So we're gonna give them a little longer. I guess one of the questions we should ask is if, God, if God's holiness requires judgment, which it does, then why are any of us still alive? Because all of us have done stupid things. All of us have been prideful. All of us have been arrogant. All of us have taken advantage of people. All of us have lied. All of us have maybe taken something that wasn't ours at some point or another. All of us have done something that would disqualify us from heaven. 
we're not the 87% that's good enough to get in. All of us have. So why hasn't God rained down fire on us? Why hasn't God punished us the way we deserve to be punished? It's because God is patient with us. In fact, he's so patient with us that when his wrath is poured out at times, we're shocked by it. We go, well, that's not fair. That doesn't seem right. Because God is patient over and over and over again. See, we're repulsed by the stories of God's wrath, but the stories of God's mercy are so much more numerous than the stories of God's wrath. The stories of God's mercy, when he was patient and gentle and kind and came alongside us, we see this over and over and over again. He is a just God. He is a holy God, and he will not put up with sin, but he's also patient. He loves us. He's patient with us. When David, he sinned, um, he, he lusted after Bathsheba, a woman that was not his wife. He slept with her. He had her husband killed. And then he married her to cover up his sin. Nathan, the prophet, came to him and confronted him. He, he said, I, I see what you've done. I know what you've done. God told him about it. And, and this is, the interaction in 2 Samuel 12, 13. This is from the English Standard Version. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nathan said, yes, you have sinned and your sin separates you from God. But did you hear what he said? He said, God has put away your sin. So, so where did God put David's sin. Where did that sin get put away to? Well, in the Old Testament, that sin was placed on a sacrificial animal. And that, that animal bore the weight of that sin. But Jesus bears the, bears the weight for us. When we sin and we repent, just like David did, we come before God and we go, God, we're sorry. God, I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry for what I said. I'm sorry for my attitude. God will take our sin and set it aside. He will put it away. And where he puts it is on Christ. The work Christ did on the cross carries the weight of our sin and it appeases the, the wrath and the vengeance of a holy, just God. And it allows us to be in right standing with, with God. And he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does it joyfully because he loves us. See, God cannot be a holy God if he lets the guilty go free. So he has to put our sin away. Jesus willingly took our sin upon himself so that we could know life, not just life in heaven someday, but abundance. This is my hope for you this weekend is that you'll understand no matter how good or bad you think you are, all of us need a savior. All of us are attempting to serve a God that is just, that his holiness causes him to be just and causes him not to wink at our sinfulness. God takes our sin seriously and we should as well. We should also take God's holiness seriously 
Because when we understand how holy he is and what that means for us, it will change how we live, how we view God, and what kind of life we really get to experience. I'm gonna turn it over to our host in Blairsville. They're gonna close out the rest of our time together. I hope you guys know how much I love you, because I do. I love you more than you know. I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you. You know, this weekend's kind of a hard message. Just talking about sin, how we're all a bunch of sinners. And it would be easy just to be beaten down by this, but I don't want you to be. I, I want you to find the hope that God has given us away. It's in Christ Jesus. That it's not just a way to escape hell, it's in a way to find life. So that's what I want to encourage you in. That's what I want to challenge you in. I don't want you to walk out of this place defeated. I don't want you to walk out of here discouraged. I want you to know that we have victory through Christ Jesus. We have life through Christ Jesus. We have hope through Christ Jesus. That our God is just because he is holy, but he's also loving and benevolent and merciful to those that repent. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for loving us like you do. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you that at the very moment sin entered into this world, you, you began to put a plan in place for restoration and reconciliation. So God, I pray that we would take sin seriously, that we would look at our own lives and we let the Holy Spirit convict us of things that maybe we've gotten comfortable with, areas of our life that maybe we handle some profane things. And God, I pray that we would begin to see how holy you are and see how our sin, especially our unrepentant sin, removes us from you. And it, it keeps us from walking in the life that you've got for us. So God, I pray, open our eyes to that. Help us see how we devalue you every time we make sinful choices, selfish choices. And God, I pray as, as we see you correctly, it would shift our hearts and our lives. As we value you for who you really are and how holy you are and what that means for us, God, I pray that it would shift everything in our relationship with you. So God, have your way over these next few moments. Speak life into us and into this place. I pray for those that are here that don't know you, that they've never surrendered their lives to you. I pray for those that maybe they're religious. Maybe they've, they've grown up in a religious setting, but they recognize that they're not really in a relationship, that they don't really know life. Let today be the day. So God, move in us, move through us, change us. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you'd say to me, Mel, you know what? I recognize today that I'm not really living for God. I know that I've got sin in my life that separates me from a holy, just God. And just like David repented, if you're here and you'd say, I wanna repent, I wanna, I wanna turn away from, from my selfish living, from my selfish decisions, from my sinful life. And I wanna turn toward God. I wanna experience the life he has instead of the death that I've grabbed hold of. I'm not gonna embarrass you or make you come forward. I just wanna pray with you right where you're at. I think God can change everything. So if you're here today and you'd say to me, Mel, I, I wanna surrender my life to Christ. I wanna turn from the path I'm on. I wanna experience the life of God. Would you slip your hand up real high where I can see it and you put it right back down? Yeah, thank you. Who else would say, Mel, that's me, pray for me. Yeah, thank you on my left. Who else would join these and say, Mel, pray for me. Include me in that prayer. Yeah, I see you up in the balcony. 
Praise God. Just a few more seconds. Anyone else want to join these and say, Mel, pray for me? Yeah, thank you on my right. Praise the Lord. Yeah, thank you in the center section. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. I want every person in the place to repeat this prayer after me. The book of Romans tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So I want you to say this prayer out loud with me, whether you raised your hand or not. I want you to pray this prayer boldly, but don't just say it with your mouth, but mean it from your heart. Say this with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me even at my worst. Thank you for sending Jesus to pay the price for my sin on the cross. From this day forward, I'm pursuing you. I turn away from my old life, from my selfish living and my sinful decisions. From this day forward, make me holy as you are holy. I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause, can we? Listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, scripture says you're a new creation. We would love to help you take the next step. So please don't stop with just making a decision and praying a prayer with us. That's great. But we really wanna help you begin to grow in your faith. So the simplest thing for you to do would be to simply text Summit PA to the number 94,000 from your cell phone or your mobile device. Or if you'd rather not do that, you can take the card out of the seat back in front of you. Take it over to our info center here in just a moment when we're done. Give it to them. They're gonna have you fill it out. They're gonna give you a Bible, help you take the next step in your faith journey. So please take advantage of that. We would love to help you grow in your faith. Here's what's gonna happen right now. Pastor Kendall's gonna lead us in one final song. We're gonna worship together while we're singing. Our prayer team and some of our staff is gonna be right down here at the front of the room to pray with you about whatever needs you may have. And so as we're singing this final song, I would encourage you, worship with us, but maybe this is a moment for you to reflect on what the Holy Spirit's spoken into your life this weekend and, and ask God, God, what do I need to change? What do you wanna change? And what do I need to do next? And I believe he'll show you if you'll ask. So why don't you stand to your feet all of the room. Let's worship together one more time before we go. Guys, I, I hope you know this. I love you more than you know. And I am so honored that I get to be your pastor. God bless you. Have a great weekend.